Welcome back. This is Tina. And this is Zoe. And this is Gaia. And we are the devils in the details. We are an Exorcist TV show fan podcast. And we love talking, discussing all things the Exorcist TV show one episode at a time. Today we are rewatching the fourth episode, The Movable Feast. In this episode, you may recall that it is about uh, Casey. Her condition deteriorates quite a bit. And Marcus is sent on a mission by Bennett to go and seek out these other new characters, which we uh, have a lot of fun with. And Thomas is also commissioned again by Angela. Please help my daughter. Please help my daughter. Just a heads up to a reminder that this podcast will have spoilers for the entire two seasons. So if you have not watched those two seasons, Seasons, go watch them. What are you waiting for? It's an amazing show. <laughs> so um, let's get right into it then. We are in traditional fashion talking about the opening sequence, deep diving into some critical scenes here. So the first one, the opening scene, which I think I'm calling nasty eggs, but there's more to it than just the nasty eggs. <laughs> what do we got? It a truly creepy opening. Like, <laughs> Pretty much unfertilized chicken fetuses for breakfast. Not my most desired nutritional meal. And the meal starts squirming <laughs> about. It's gross. It's grim. It's horrible. But it's that whole like, you know, you think of eggs and you think of like rebirth and life and things are okay. And then they crack the eggs and it's like, nope, they are born dead. And like Casey knows that she's in real trouble now because all her perceptions of things going to be okay are now being turned on their head by the fact that she's invited like proper death and decay into her. And yeah, she's in a lot of trouble uh, from now on. Uh, a bit, a bit of trouble. Life. Yeah, yeah. Like the fact that, you know, it opens up with, you know, they don't, they don't tell you it's a dream, but you can get a sense real quick that this is not happening in real time. This is something that is of another world, particularly with that. The music, too, is very – it's it's too chipper. It almost felt like – I don't know if you remember that show, Leave it to Beaver. It was kind of like playful. Like there's kind of like playful light music and family atmosphere and mom is just cooking up some breakfast. And then, and then we see – Domestic and – yeah. It's like a nice domestic breakfast scene and you're like, wait a minute, this is too nice. This is too safe. And what's what very creepy is that it all appears to be very normal. A mother cooking, a father working at the table, but then we see Kat very busy being the swan and we know, we know it's everything that Casey both wants and is afraid of. So we know she's in big trouble and Pazuzu finally shows his true face for the first time after he was so gentle with her, after he was so protective of her, he hits her. So the sexualization of possession that we saw in the past episode now is, uh, it is also an abusive relationship. Right, it's taking on that really dark, predatory character of, you know, I'm no longer your friend. It's clear that I am here to hurt you and and take over your entire body. And she, I think repeatedly throughout this episode, is like, you 
trick me, you trick me. This isn't the way that you said it was going to be. And uh, continues that line of, of suffocation, which we get into a little bit later too in this episode where I think like, the, don't the vines come out uh, in this dream sequence where there's like, they come out under her feet and like Weird, bleedy rooty vines. Yeah. They're kind of like cross between a vine and a vein and they're rooting her in and just showing that she's now trapped and entangled and, but it's also a part of her that's like she's because they're coming from her. They also seem like they seem to be like bloodied and stuff. It's like it's her own body is rooting her into this into this predicament now. Yeah. And he steps on her, too. Right. He's just like, yeah, his domineerance and his possession of her. Literally, we're going, no, you asked for this. Now you have to take it. God, gross demon. Pazuzu. Ew. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh. So right now, everybody, we're about to go into our deep dives for our scenes, but we're kind of changing up the routine, which terrifies me because I am a creature of routine and any kind of change makes me scared. (laughs) So I'm going to have Zoe explain what we're doing and why. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for that. Okay. The only reason we're doing it slightly differently this week is because of the way this episode was edited. It has a lot of fast editing. It has a lot of scenes that literally last for two minutes then go to the next scene then go back again. And instead of trying to analyse every single two minute scene, we thought it'd be easier if we clumped them together into deep dive sections and just analysed one arc at a time. So that was my reasoning behind it. Otherwise, it would have got a little bit crazy with the like two seconds here two seconds there two seconds here. (laughs) but you know what we're gonna analyze deep dive the arcs rather than the scenes so the first arc that we're discussing is (laughs) angela and her struggle with casey being in the hospital um seeking tomas's help and also the the portion where pazuzu comes in and really starts getting more and more into Casey's room and and trying to possess her there. So there's a lot to say about the, all these interactions. But um, you had some great points, uh, Zoe, on the the notes of the festering, the the, the decay that's happening with yes um, Casey's body. Session with decay and detritus and detritivores <laughs> and all the weird, crazy, gross out stuff. Like so, from the last episode where you started noticing the rot physically on. Casey's like neck to the point now that one of the main things that struck me is that whatever point on her body that Pazuzu touches her is where you see blistering so the fact that he's actually now it's got to the point where we've seen dust because decomposition and death is happening we've seen the detritivores come in to eat it the next stage when any time you leave things is to rot and then disease sets in so now we're in the disease phase. This is the body is getting diseased. It's getting blistered. It's getting like infected. And because it's also juxtaposed with being in a hospital and the doctors are treating it like it could be a disease or a medical condition. And it's also, it is the disease that is Pazuzu's demonic possession is now taking toll on this body. And the doctors are trying to cure this disease. Unfortunately, this is a disease that can't be cured. By- right normal medicine it has to be cured by an exorcism but we are starting to see this breakdown of like yeah Casey's body because well everything that's been happening has now come to the point where infection has set in yeah and then like there's even that scene where the nurse is trying to inject 
Casey with with I think it's a like some sort of tranquilizer or something to just sedate her a little bit yeah. and help her with the pain. And oh, yeah. uh, I I love the way that they cross over real world stuff with what's happening in this kind of demon dimension yeah. where Pazuzu holds onto the arm and prevents and prevents the medicine from going in, which blew my mind because I'm like, wow, he has a, a big effect on the real world. His power is pretty great for a demon, like to be able to not only you know he can move yeah. things but also prevent you know. Uh, medicine from getting into Casey is is scary. Yeah, but we know that Pazuzu is a very high-ranked demon. We already know that from the original movie. And he he has a huge grudge against humanity. So uh, in the time he spent hating humanity, he also became stronger and stronger and stronger. So it's, it's pretty normal that he can interfere with reality. I am word vomiting everything I have about this scene because I am so excited about this image. And I'm like, oh, this is a really cool one that I remember seeing on Tumblr, somebody posting about. um, So the image of Pazuzu sitting on top of Casey as he's continuing to tell her, like, just say yes and just let me in. It it spoke personally to me because I remember what it felt like to have sleep paralysis and it feels like a demon is literally sitting on top of your chest and you can't breathe and you can't move and it's terrifying. But uh, more to the point, so Tumblr, somebody posted that famous painting by Henry Fuseli mm-hmm. called The Nightmare uh, painted in 1781. And it's a famous one that a lot of people use whenever they talk about either getting possessed or having particularly night terrors or sleep paralysis where you feel like you can't move. And the image is almost like I think the directors of this episode were like, we want to use that exact image of this thing sitting on her and looking like this raven. And that's also where we see the costuming happening, where his costume is now even more shredded. And it looks even more like he's got shredded on his back and looks like almost wings could be there or sprouting out there or demon wings because he's a demon. I don't even know. <laughs> like there's a lot. So that's that's my word vomit. <laughs> <laughs> It's good word vomit. I do think he's growing feathers. I agree with the feathers because we have that whole thing with like the raven earlier and carrion and and ravens being a, like you know one of the various birds that are considered like you know carrions that eat corpses and dead people and he's like a demon that's eating souls and therefore he's got that oh. like representation. So I always thought he was covered in feathers because of that whole kind of weird relationship, like things like ravens and crows have with like Gothism and the dead. So I always, yeah, definitely sprouting wings, getting his teeth roll, getting yellow. And it's like, Oh, he's feeding on her death. He's feeding on her suffering, you horrible creature. And manky and he's possessive. Also, he starts getting that, the voice comes out more like that demonic two-tonal voice. And he's like, so, and, oh, he's it's just, really deep. It's, it's a deep, yeah, scary. It's deep and, yeah. it's like, and it's so, and the fact that he is just casually sitting there so casually and so just like, you're not, you're not moving. And he's having a lovely old time. And like you, I've had night terrors and stuff. And the ones I remember telling you about the ones with the man that lives at the end of my bed, who likes to try and gnaw on my face. And it's just like, it's that sense of oh, yeah. absolute, terrifying pressure not being able to move but also not being able to scream for help right right and and, and you're powerless you can't you can't move you can't breathe all you can do is like your eyes are open yeah and it's just like and it really like I remember it felt like my mouth was sewn shut and I was literally trying to rip my lips apart to kind of be like help shit's going down here and 
Uh, my most recent one is that I had like the demon had a hood and the most recent one, he had like these, his hands and he kept like wringing his hands, like a la super bad villain from a bad movie. Like (laughs) like he was going to try to attack me and that's, and then it just faded away. I woke up and it was, it was gone. It's terrifying. It's terrifying. They really capture the idea of night terrors really well in this. And that image of a nightmare and what she's going through is a nightmare. It's just all, yeah, wonderfully well put together. And again, with all my grey tones, making it all kind of like very like yeah. devoid of life, very clinical, even more so because it's a hospital scene. So it is very like clinical and devoid of life. Yeah, um, they use that a lot. They use a very sterile blue grey, I noticed, yeah, in, in every yeah, single yeah. hospital scene. It's it's. Ugh. It's a similar one to they use, to they use when it's the family setting. It's that grey, like this is without hope kind of area there is no color saturating this scene one of the things that i wanted to mention is when henry goes to the chapel and angela goes to find him and they have that conversation they replay mm-hmm. the music box music oh they did yes yeah, yeah. yeah. you can that's hear twinkling in the background that's very true and it's also the moment Harry realizes that there is something wrong with um Kezi and he has set Whatever Angela wants to do, he will do it because he knows. Mm-hmm. He knows uh, there is something very wrong with his daughter, and uh, he knows uh, there is no medical explanation. Yes. So the whole like deconstruction of what was going on in those things, and it's the fact that Angela knows that she that Casey is possessed by a demon, and she's like doctors that don't care how much like your medical information just let me see my daughter I know what's going to happen let me and you could just see her like slowly slowly breaking down more in desperation and Pazuzu playing on that by being more and more controlling and manipulative of Casey and making sure she gets no rest and no break from the constant pain and fear and then there's that horrific scene where the nurse is trying to be good to Casey trying to reassure her and Casey's like again little light I've not been allowed to see my mother and I'm lost and lonely but this like nurse that obviously believes in God comes in and is like don't worry child I will look after you and Pazuzu is immediately like going no now now I'm going to kill this woman she gave you hope she gave oh you he's going to make an example out of her is what yeah. he's going to do particularly if she's wearing that the cross yes, around her yeah. neck and it's just so upsetting because like Casey was maybe going to get a reprieve from everything that was happening to her and all that horrific stuff like with the nose spider going oh yeah you're, a, you're and he's calling oh, her a yeah. bitch and saying that like you know this evil is inside you and it's ready to creep out and then physically a spider creeps out of her and I hate spiders so I was like oh god oh god and then earlier <laughs> Angela has said like this thing inside her is festering and they keep using that word festering which is why it makes me think of it being like a disease and Casey being actually like an open wound now and it's all kind of coming out to her and she's going to start decaying and she knows that things are going wrong and Pazuzu's like, I've got you and you know what? It will be a lot less painful and a lot less horrific if you just totally say yes to me. Come on, you've let me yeah. in. You're sharing exactly. these with me. Like, let me go that next bit and then that brilliant moment where she's just like, oh God, don't kill the nurse. Actually, okay, fine. I'll just say yes. And Pazuzu's like going, I will take you. And then Angela finally goes, I will see my daughter. And is able to go in. I mean, I'm here now. And Pazuzu has to fade back because he's right. not going to be able to get that total possession with Angela being that strong presence. All right. So 
right now we're talking about uh, the scenes that Marcus has in the in the entirety. We want to just weave this whole arc together. So we're calling this next segment the Marcus Show because it has everything to do with his um, quest to go find those loyal retainers through through the help of Mother Bernadette, through Lester, through Cherry. And so to kick off this segment, we have, I think, a perfect audio clip that showcases uh, both Marcus's intentions to find Mother Bernadette and his and a little bit of his humor. So let's go ahead and kick that off. Good morning, sister. I was hoping that I might speak with the abbess. The abbess has taken a vow of silence. Of course. Uh, what time is her hour of respite? She does take one, doesn't she? Otherwise, I mean, she'd go a bit... Mm. <laughs> Thank you. He's okay. I just... <laughs> Perfect, perfect Marcus. He's so like, he's so intense at times, but then he's also, he's also pretty playful. Uh, So we wanted to speak a little bit about um, his, his, this is kind of a fun part, but a little bit of his costuming. Zoe wanted to talk a little bit about that and some camera angles that, uh, (laughs) that you found rather enticing. So (laughs) Zoe. I got very distracted at the beginning of like the Marcus art of this show, especially on the bench, because, you know, he's dressed very well this episode. I mean, he always dresses very well, but his nice leather jacket, his jeans. But mm-hmm. there was never been more obviously like a female gaze camera angles going on than there was when he's sitting on the bench and he's sitting with his legs sprawled and the camera's from below and he's having a conversation and it's just a crotch shot. And I'm just sitting there going... <laughs> I don't know what would, there's probably some significance in this. I probably should pay more attention to analyze this. But all I kept thinking of is like, that's a crotch shot. <laughs> I'm going to stare at your crotch. And if they didn't leave the camera there, I wouldn't have been looking at Marcus's crotch. <laughs> so, and they made the choice. They made the cho- choice to shoot him from that angle. Otherwise, they would have done like, you know, a shot of his face. They didn't want me looking at his face. They clearly oh. wanted me Oh, they were very intentional on making sure that the women watching would see Marcus in all of his glory and particularly in his glory down there as well. (laughs) But it makes you start realizing that actually a lot of the lingering camera gazes and a lot of the angles do fall on Marcus and Tomas in an aesthetically pleasing way to like, you know, women or or people who find them aesthetically appealing. And it was making me think of the last episode where you have Casey wearing the sexy dress and they never camera lingered on boobs or anything, but this camera certainly lingered on like Tomas's arms from when he came in from running. And the camera does like to show us that these are a, Appealing actors, and Marcus <laughs> not only like leans against walls in an attractive manner, he now makes looking sitting on a bench look sexy. And I'm like, oh, we've gone to a convent. We're gonna go, like you know, see some nuns. And I'm staring at your crotch, going, "You work that bench, boy. You work it." <laughs> well, I agree. I agree. I think they do very artistic choices sometimes with the way that they shoot their scenes. And sometimes I think it's a little bit of just fan service as well. So thank you directors of the exorcist for knowing that uh, we also appreciate those female gazes uh, from the camera. So thank you. We're going to get a little bit into this in the writer's room and guy is going to kick us off on that. Uh, but I want to touch just a little lightly on the, the talk that mother Bernadette has with 
um, with Marcus about the way that he performs exorcisms versus how they perform exorcisms. So, um, Gaia, did you have anything you wanted to add? I'm talking specifically on the scene where she's on the bench with him and, and the words that she tells him that the, the approaches he uses to, to have an exorcism and, and how they do it. Yeah. Uh, I think that's the perfect, uh, portrait of the never ending struggle between, uh, male and female roles inside the Catholic Church. We are going to talk deeply about that in the writing room, but uh, the way Mother uh, Bernadette is uh, keeping her ground against the sassy Marcus is beautifully done. Um, she shows him another way not only in doing exorcism but also another way in living life Thomas, uh, marcus is too used to be alone and he is not used enough to see things from another point of view above all when the point of view belongs to a woman so this is uh, the episode in which Marcus learned something new from a woman. Like, no, the thing that um, I did find interesting was um, the murder bus people. Yes. And even though some of it was a bit like, a bit like random, it was their description of something they were calling the surge. Mm -hmm. And it was that setting up the bigger picture of like, there's more of this conspiracy going on. There's more demons than there should be. And it was all that stuff I saw about like how the area is very poor and that's why the demons are coming to it and it's bringing together those ideas. But they say that in an area that consolidates poverty, um, the pressure starts building, the community gets more violent and that's why all the demons are coming oh, to I it. Oh, I love that. that you're talking so, about, uh, I, I wrote down that, that quote, consolidate poverty and you create these cultures of violence. Yeah. Buster says it. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, so it's like what we've been like thinking all along in the fact that they're coming to this area because it's easy to get in and it's easy for people to blame violence on ethnic minorities and poverty in areas that just don't like get as much kind of love and attention and support. And of course, the demons would be targeting it. And these guys are like, well, you, got, you Marcus, are like an exorcist, you're living in these areas. You're seeing these changes, aren't you? You've got to be noticing this. And then he's like, oh, yes, and starts inquiring about the, the types of murders that have been committed. And they put the pieces together that it's something called the the ceremony of the ceremony Ash. Of Ocari Poveri. They're start, yeah, they're going to start summoning more demons. <laughs> and Marcus finally puts it, it's like, this is related to the Pope's visit. Yeah. We know that not only do we have this one girl that's got a horrific possession we also know there's a bigger picture and it is definitely now related to the pope's visit to chicago right and i know that <laughs> they're not your favorite characters lester and sherry but i i love that again they're, they're part of this exposition the creation of this this bigger plot they really push it along but yeah. i loved all of the scenes that they have with with marcus and this, no. they're, they're kind of goofy they're smart they're phds you know and and uh they don't take themselves too seriously but if they ever decided to bring them back i would be super in love wait did they kill him did they kill him they don't end up dead i can't remember well, if they didn't kill them, I would love to see them back because they were hilarious. <laughs> I think there's the, uh, I think I have that 
Oh, yeah, yeah, I have the clip. I have the one clip where they're talking. That, let me see. Bennett. I'm not prying. I want to know. That is the definition of prying. I pulled a gun on him amongst other things. A priest with a gun. An exorcist with a gun. To be accurate, Jerry. <laughs> I was say all the time, Marcus is just so hot. I know, he's not... Everything he says is just like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, tell me about your gun. <laughs> I've gentrified this man far too much. Dear oh dear, he's going on a spiritual journey, and all I've done is like discuss his weapon and crap. <laughs> no, no, we do academic segments as well, but we are totally in our right as fans to just fangirl. It's okay. <laughs> I allow it. Yeah. But and also, that's the way he's written. That's how the way the lines are delivered. Yeah. He knows he's a central and charming force. Like he was on that bus one minute kind of going, wait a minute, blah, 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 blah. And they're like, don't interrupt. And the next minute they're all just hanging out and then he stays over. <laughs> and it's just like, so clearly like charmed his way into like having a nook for the night. Last week he got corn. This week he got like a nook. <laughs> like, you know, I met Marcus on the street and started chatting to me. I'd be like, sure, come and sleep at my house. My husband won't mind either. We'll all have a lovely time. <laughs> I will feed you. You can have a place to sleep. Oh, he's a little cat. <laughs> um, you know, the big scene that I wanted to dissect a little bit was he's actually utilizing the tips and tricks of Mother Bernadette's convent to exercise the demon. And, and he uses, as opposed to doing a lot of his former way of compulsion and coercion yeah. he has to go from this more and i think they actually say the line oh it's a more feminine side of it um, feminine approach which yeah makes sense because he's first he's like she's kind of going you're very egotistical and you're using coercion and compelment and she's pretty much schooling marcus on like you're being arrogant and you're being forceful and sometimes it takes you know literally a woman's touch like Good sometimes point. you need to find a way in and marcus is just being sarcastic and bantering and still flirting yeah. and <laughs> like and that's kind of, how, kind of how he hides some of his like insecurities like and if he's like oh am i doing something wrong well if i flirt enough and be charming enough then you'll kind of forgive me for being a little bit like egotistical. <laughs> and it kind of works but he is egotistical like, in the way that he even in that scene where he's he's now in the in the circle with all the nuns chanting around him he goes back to his old ways and he starts well, I have that clip too. Let's hear how he kind of devolves into his old ways and then how he kind of figures out maybe this isn't the best route. Give place, abominable creature. Give way, Give way to Christ. Son of the morning, by this from grace, you were forgiven. piece as well it's that really haunting gentle sad but kind of hopeful kind of melody yeah. it's like a really like intriguing intriguing piece of like 
like music. Right. It goes back to the violins. The violins are a big piece of the soundtrack in this show. And it starts, you know, the, the sound effects that they're using in this is very guttural, growly, you know, and the, and the snorting. I just, I feel for those Foley artists who are back there behind the set going like making, how do I make like a growly, snappy, boogery sound? Oh, here you go. (laughs) (laughs) But then they have to then say, okay, we got to dial this back and then introduce these very soft, soulful violin sounds at the end yeah it's a very personal piece of music and it's just like but i just i love the way that marcus kind of goes no wait a minute no i can do this and then he has that look of like i'm gonna try and accept this other approach and big thing i get from this scene is is he talking is he telling the demon is he forgiven or truly is he saying about himself because if you listen to it, like he starts praying for the demon's soul and saying he is forgiven and he is loved. Yes, no, I agree. That's exactly what went through my mind because when they were filming him, his face looks to the camera, actually. And it's almost like he locks eyes. They break the fourth wall yeah. almost when he's to, to make it seem like, hey, audience, like this isn't just about this demon. It's a little bit about it's Marcus's like, yeah. plight as well. It's all that stuff that he feels like he has been abandoned by the church. He's been abandoned by God. He's he's failed. And as he said earlier, he doesn't fail. And it's like he's known failure, yeah. known defeat, and he let his ego get in the way. And he thought because he failed God, he doesn't deserve God's love and therefore God's gifts. And obviously, you know, what Bernadette said that it's like. Is it, is it your gifts? Is it God's gifts? Is it the church gifts? She had that conversation with him about accepting the gifts from God go to him by his choice. And it's that moment where he's realized that he's still blessed with God's gifts. He still has that connection and he can yeah. feel And, you know, it took a different approach and a different like understanding of the situation to kind of feel it all. And I feel like, yeah, he's finally saying, I am forgiven. I am loved. I am blessed. So as far as the, that also scene, there's some bits about purple, that we wanted to bring up as well, yes. the coloring there. I mean, what was happening there? It's both those scenes where they do the kind of feminine-led exorcism, the one where Marcus is on the outside going, oh, this is not right, you know, and then the one when he gets to actually be in the circle. And obviously the demon appears, and there's my usual pussy brown demon colors, but when <laughs> it's the actual exorcism circle, everything is bathed in the color purple. And I was like, purple means something. And purple means more than just like royalty. Because in England, purple is a royal color. So you associate royalty and purple and richness. But I knew there must be more to why everything was bathed in purple. And so I went and like, I looked it up and basically went, that makes no sense. So basically I found out that in like symbolism terms the color purple is meant to have um effect on your mind and body and it's meant to be uplifting your spirits calming your mind and nerves and enhancing the sacred so it creates feelings of spirituality but it also increases nurturing tendencies and sensitivity and it encourages imagination creativity which makes it so on par with everything that mother bernadette is saying for Marcus, because she's trying to nurture him. She's a nurturer, yeah. She's And she's trying to inspire his creativity and his imagination to try a different technique and to enhance his own, like, beliefs and what, what he feels is sacred. And I was like, oh, I love it when, like, coloured palettes on things do mean so much. And, yes. Yeah, they, they make a good choice with 
transitioning between those two different colors because they really want your mood to change they don't want you to stay in this feeling of like it is constantly dim it's constantly gray it's constantly sterile this there's this there's a warmth to certain scenes this scene it it to me honestly the first thing i saw was not purple but i saw like 80s club like <laughs> you know the, the like a club it's scene where all the lights neon. right like a neon yeah. <laughs> i was thinking like not at the roxbury like purple <laughs> Depending on the shade of purple depends on what it means. So purple has all these things, but specifically a bright and vibrant purple or a gemstone-esque color purple is for removing perceived spiritual obstacles, for calming confrontations and to re-energize the learning of new things. That is a lot for one color to do. Yep. But I, I, feel bad. I feel bad for chartreuse, like just hanging out in the corner. Not as cool as purple. Purple just getting all the love and nurturing and... (laughs) Yeah, and spirituality. But it's like, it's all those vibrant things because everything about that scene is nurturing, re-lifting your connection and being more spiritual and more understanding and more opening to new things. And it's like, it's exactly why they use the color purple. And it's brilliant. Right, right. And also to showcase how badass women can be. Like, those nuns were so cool to watch. I loved that they were just doing it so calmly and with such a kind of quiet power. I thought that was insanely awesome. Yeah, they have like a quiet and like they don't need grand gestures and big important like like anything. You just know that they have so much strength and so much strength of will and character. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and also it just shows like how important like mothering nature is. And which is seen again in Angela, that it's her mothering nature to be with Casey that stops Pazuzu at that last moment and causes him to, like, fall out. So there's a lot of themes of motherhood. There's a lot of themes in- of women power in this one. All the ways that women can are, are not only compliments to the male, but many times are that the power behind yeah. the, the brute strength. I find it amusing that as we record this episode, it's Mother's Day in the UK. I know that's so cool and then we just celebrated International Women's Day on Thursday it's all these it's it's so providential that we have it all at the same time I love it so this next deep dive scene again it's it's kind of its own separate thing it's that it's arc is really still tied into Marcus of uh how he is not complete without somebody else and somebody else is not complete without him and this is the first time we actually hear uh, Tomas admitting that he needs his his brother. Uh, which yeah. We're talking about the scene where Marcus comes into Thomas's office, leaning again, typical trademark lean, against yeah. the side of the door. And Tomas admits to him, you know, what he, he says, what are you waiting for? Marcus says, what are you waiting for? And he says, you. And Thomas says, I need you. And you go, oh. Oh. And they do like, like, how do you feel? Like a mountain. It's like, you go, Marcus. You a mountain. Big as a mountain. Steady. <laughs> and looking hot and beautiful. But it is. It's really touching that, like, yeah, Thomas has been having a tough time this episode trying to get people to take him seriously. Right. Trying to actually realize he should be taken seriously when he doesn't really know what he's doing. And he's trying to learn something and he's not quite got the confidence and he's, you know, having weird moments with Maria and her husband with a massive icky tongue. And he's like, he's not had a great journey. This <laughs> oh yeah. We forgot to talk about the tongue. That, that tongue was, was nasty. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, whatever you've got and it's killing you, it's 
manky. Um, not that death is ever pretty, but it's just like, why the massive tongue? That's such a really, yeah, <laughs> creepy visual. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I'm getting all kinds of situations. I just need to, I need to get out of here and I need my Marcus back. And then Marcus is like, hey, I'm here. I'm your mountain. God, <laughs> yeah. this rock. He's not just a single rock. He's come to be his mountain. I dig it. I want to climb that mountain. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then there's, yeah, there's more beautiful montaging, and then there's, there's basically me objectifying Marcus some more. Well, yes. Well, this this final scene with yeah, where they're where they're it's the big setup. You know, it's like the big army sequence scene where you see them all like instead of grabbing a whole bunch of weapons, they're grabbing all of the mattresses. You know, it's very typical of a lot yeah. of like before the battle. It's the it's the we got to set up. We yeah. got to get ready. But the music is a perfect choice. It's um. It's called, and it's the music that we're playing at the beginning of this podcast that you'll hear. It's called There's a Light by Shirley Ann Lee, a performer from the uh, late 60s in the church revival uh, genre of that time. And it has that perfect sound of that old school, you know, gospel feel and her voice is crackling and it's just uh, it still has that message of hope and and I've got the light here and nothing's gonna mess me up and I'm like yeah I'm ready to rock you know <laughs> it's like <laughs> not the typical pump up rock music that you would think you'd hear in this big kind of setup for a battle scene it's it's kind of the opposite sound of it but it's still really yeah. got me going yes I'm like okay I'm invested it's all coming down and then and then like got my notes and I was like and then then, then Marcus comes out and he's wearing a sexy pre-shirt and I'm like oh my goodness I'm objectifying his priest clothes now <laughs> he is he put his collar undone and he's like you know food buttons undone and you're just like how do you make that look how do you make a like priest outfit look sexy and Marcus is like if you can make anything look he good. basically was like hold my beer I will show you I will show you yeah this is how you wear priest robes mm. <laughs> speaking of a uh, priest priestly clothing can we just have a moment to talk about how tomas needed help putting on his collar that he's put on multiple times before but he goes can i can i get your help come on tomas you know what you're doing i know are you just like you literally you've seen him in his collar every episode he clearly knows how to put it on and all of a sudden he's like hey marcus i'm just gonna flick my hair on (laughs) and you're just like you flirty boy! Like, put your collar on. Let me just slide. Yeah, and it's like, oh my god, you bad brain. But come on, you would do. I would do the exact same thing. I would be like, "Oops, I have no idea how to tie my scarf around my neck. Can you help me?" Like yeah. <laughs> it was Marcus. <laughs> it's like you literally yeah, exactly. just put it around your neck. You know, don't you don't need help. It's just so long. <laughs> it was like, it's like I suppose it's going to be a touching bonding moment, but it's a really touching oh. bonding moment because you like. I'm pretty sure Tomas would know how to put his collar on. He's like, no, it must, it must, it must bond more with Marcus. We must be even more connected. <laughs> All right. So that's the final deep dive scene. Um, so Ooh. we do we, which obviously ends with the best bit where you finally see fully possessed Casey. Oh, and she's proper like, Argh! and then it fades to black, and then you hear Marcus go, "Let us begin." Oh, with the chains and everything. Which maybe I'll post this on my Tumblr, but I have a behind the scenes clip of when uh, Alfonso and Ben are just like hanging out with the chains. Did you see that clip where they're like dancing with the chains? (laughs) I think one of them posted it on Twitter a while back, but it was like 
as when on this rewatch, I'm watching this super serious scene where Casey's like with the chains, and then all I can think of is, of course, you know, Ben and Alfonso like grinding on each other <laughs> with these chains. It, just, it didn't. I would like to see this clip very much. Yeah, I'll send it to you. Please put it in the Facebook group. And I will put it, I'll tell all you listeners, it'll be in our Facebook group, it'll be in our Tumblrs, and you can see the grinding of Ben and Alfonso with these chains. Um, So, fun facts this week, I have tres, three, pua, pua in French, (laughs) san in Japanese. Oh, (laughs) okay, so (laughs) ichi, the first one. Um, so according to showrunner Slater, this has nothing to do with this specific episode, but it has more to do with the grander scheme. You know, they have all these introductions of these different levels of demons and this hierarchy and all this stuff. So, of course, you think, oh, well, maybe there's a balance to that. Maybe they'll have some divinic um, angel figures eventually. So when asked if there would ever be angel figures or divine figures, uh, Jeremy Slater said, with the equivalent of hell no there will never be angels in this show (laughs) Um, and and the reasoning behind it he said is that if you start putting angels in it makes it too easy for the good guys to win and part of having faith and part of it is the struggle to know to feel like you are kind of alone and to have that fight that there's not going to be this like do sex machina that comes in and just saves everybody, you know, like an overpowered good guy, <coughs> Castiel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which, and then they have to spend the rest of the seasons ruining his character by going, oh no, we better take your powers yeah, away exactly. again. What are we going to do? We can like, we just have him back now. Yeah, exactly. It's overpowered. Um, but it's funny because somebody asked Eric Kripke, the supernatural creator, the same question back in season three or two and was like, will there ever be angels? And he's like, hell no, there will never be angels. And he turned around and had angels like by season five. So I'm just waiting. If yeah. we do get our, our, you know, five, 12 seasons that we wanted the exorcist, if we actually will have angels that show up because you know, sometimes you just need to write some characters and you kind of yeah. get to the end and you're going, what else could I write? I mean, I feel like with The Exorcist, it doesn't need to introduce angels because of the type of show it is. It's showing like demonic possession as disease and a product of human society rather than actual just like demons coming out of hell right. there. Well, there are, I think they're the big lord demons like Pazuzu, like the Baptists that are kind of more ancient beings. But I get the feeling that some of all these other lesser demons are just all that evil energy from mankind spilling over and trying to corrupt new like people. And angels are kind of like, they're, they're warriors of God, but they don't really want to get involved with humans because I've always seen angels as a bit like, we are superior beings mm-hmm. and we're not that interested in hanging out with people. <laughs> We want to, you know, praise the Lord. Right. They're they're often written in this kind of like very disenchanted. I'm thinking like the prophecy, Christopher Walken, where they're like, they call yeah. humans mud monkeys. They're always very, they're just very angry and snobby and very petty. Like, gosh, get over yourselves, angels. Like, Yeah. But also, I mean, angels are jealous of humanity because God liked us better. And so they're a bit like, well, why should I go and play with those guys? I'm not going to help them right. out. They're not doing anything. They do them. nothing for me. Exactly. So I get where they where writers will create angels that in that kind of character, but I'm tired of seeing it. So I do hope that they stick without angels. Um, the s- yeah. second fun fact is that um, when Slater was asked if he has like this kind of long term seven season arc type of thing, like where the story is going to go, he responded, "You know, he has a general idea, but it's not all set in stone." He said he had a really cool quote that 
I, I love. It says, somebody once told me, a writer said, if you have 22 ideas for a show, and if they're good ideas for a show, you write 22 episodes. What he's getting at is that you can have these good ideas where you want to take the characters, but trying... But don't get too tied into anything because a lot of the magic happens when you put all these talented writers in one room together and they, they, they spitball off of each other. So what they'll often do in the writing room, which I think sounds like the most fun process in the entire world, is where they say, okay, so what's the best story? And then somebody pitches a story and then they go, okay, now I've got this story, but someone now try to beat that. And they go, okay, well, what about this? So by just smashing all these people together and, and particularly diverse people, you know, we mentioned already that they're not just writers and screenwriters altogether. They're playwrights and they're people from, you know, they're women and, and LGBT and different backgrounds. It creates this kind of, I would think a lot of rifts. I would think it would be some disagreements trying to one up each other too. So I think that's, I think that's awesome. <laughs> Melting pot. <laughs> and my third fun fact is again this still came from like interviews with Slater I'm just like so enamored by his writing style so I'm like obsessed with all the things he has to say in interviews um on the point about how do you make an audience fall in love with your story he said it's about the characters quote our biggest lesson is to always keep the horror personal and to never sacrifice the story in exchange for a cheap and easy scare or a bit of gore because I see that that's the best made horror so i've been saying about the horror genre for years why japanese horrors work so much better than american ones they don't do big grand scares they don't do cgi effects they do small stories about family units like obviously because the famous examples are things like ring and dark water and both of those films are about single mothers trying to protect their children in an alien situation and then a haunting comes in and it's all that pressures of fears of what's happening to you is then compounded by an overall more haunting yeah. presence and that's why the works so well because it's literally you, if you took out the actual possession you would have a re still have a really compelling story about a family that has gone through double tragedy right. with like one injured depressed lost a girlfriend dad injured like depressed lost some of his mind and the family unit that is fractured and because of that what's happening to him is even worse because it's also an element of a terrifying fearful like presence that's why it's so good like it's like you start off with family horror and it's an actual real thing to be scared of and then you bring in the supernatural element right. to help you and, and you want to like these characters. Every single person in this story, I care about. I care about Kat. She, she's somebody that has a lot of tenderness to her too, and she wants to, she wants to feel love, and so does Casey. And and Angela has gone through such a trauma herself, but you don't know what that trauma is. They place kind of string you along, so you're intrigued by them. You want to care for them. You know, of course, you've got Marcus and Tomas's weird interdependency on each other now. Like, it's just, there's all of yeah. these things that make you care about them as people. And I, I just, I think it's, Character yeah, it's, it's brilliant. Right. It's brilliant. Um, yeah, you care about everyone you see and you want to know their stories. Right. You don't want bad things to happen to them, even though it's the kind of show where it's nothing but badness and sadness. Right, right. And then the on the opposite end of it, the villains, do you want to hate? And they're like, I, I love to hate them. You know, I think of... Yeah, they have got no redeeming qualities, the evils in these things. I'm so much of a villain yeah. fan girl. I can pretty much everything 
I love the villains. And this is one of those times when I'm like, the villains aren't my favourite characters in this. They are not nice things. There's, there's nothing good or redeeming. They are just embodiments. Exactly. Of which is why I want to keep watching them and I want to see them when they finally fall. And I want to see it when Puzzy's like eventually like, how could yeah. this happen to me? No, I was super powerful. Like, I'm totally waiting for that anime scene. <laughs> Yeah, um, the greatness of this show is that they created villains you can not love. There is nothing you can save in them. Uh, during in every other show out there, somehow mm-hmm. you can always find something good about the villain. You can find something terrible in in the past. You can find something that more or less can make you think about his point of view or things like that. In this show, you simply can't. Mm-hmm. There is nothing you can empathize with in those villains. There is nothing you can empathize with, not even in the characters closer to the villains. For example, there is nothing that you can empathize with in uh, Bishop Egan. He was Thomas' mentor, but that since the first moment you see him, you feel such a rage, such a hate for that man because he's so sneaky, so slimy, that really there is nothing you can like in him. And of course, you cannot like anything in Pazuzu or in the, the other villains. So that's the greatness of this show. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I feel like, Gaia, like that's, that's so genius. When you're, when you're talking about Pazuzu's even the styling of his wardrobe and all the other villains that we meet when we first meet uh, the brother and you see that he's got his other eye, that other pupil, it's they're making a point to make him look so visually detestable. Is that a word? <laughs> like that, that they're, they're, they're so different and diseased and grotesque that it's, it's making you as a viewer say that I don't want to root for this guy like even if uh, you know you think about other villains that you love to hate you think of uh you know the joker heath ledger's joker in in batman with um with how you can even kind of like oh he's got kind of a sense of humor and you kind of feel bad for him because he had acid poured on his face so you kind of see how maybe he was turned into this villain uh so you can still kind of empathize with him um but these characters are so decrepit and so just at their core evil and nasty. You're absolutely right. They're bad to the bone. <laughs> and I love it. Yeah, you are absolutely right. There is absolutely nothing in them, not is even the visual of them. There is nothing you can like. And I think that's exactly the point. You don't want to like them. You don't even want to empathize with them. You just want them to be defeated. So, uh, just some context on what's going on, everybody. We are going through the most difficult tech issues in the entire world. So bear with us <laughs> if this sounds like a chopped up audio mess. <laughs> so we're getting right into the uh, writer's room. Unfortunately, we do not have Zoe anymore with us. We had to send her on her way <laughs> to bed. <laughs> It's so that way, and and her tech wasn't working either. So, it's just it is it is Gaia and me going into the writers' room. And you know what, Gaia? Because we may not even be able to hear each other, 
you just go. You just do your writer's room. Talk about that Belladonna. Talk about the, the, the beauty of the power of Mary. Get right into it. And I will, God help me, try to listen and respond. We see Marcus <laughs> on a bench surrounded by purple flowers. Those purple flowers are called Belladonna. The, the translation of Belladonna is uh, beautiful woman. That's because uh, uh, that's a poisonous flower that was used in Italy by women not only to cause abortions when needed, but also to kill men. Uh, as always, poison was uh, a female weapon. And we have many examples of women accused to be murdered and to use poison as a weapon. And the most famous of them all is Lucrezia Borgia. But yes, that's a poisonous plant. And Mother Bernadette will tell us through Marcus that sometimes when uh, a possession is too eradicated already and there is nothing they can do to stop it, to free the person from the demon, they give a merciful death through poison to that person. And Marcus is shocked because this episode is the, the episode in which Marcus finds back his humanity. Marcus has never, never lost someone until Gabriel. Mother Bernadette is a very strong and powerful woman. She is also a very strong and powerful exorcist. But she has lost many. We know that because there are many plants of Belladonna. So we can suppose that the poison had been used many times. In this episode, we also see the never-ending struggle inside the Catholic Church that is divided by the fight between the female and the male power. We have one of the most beautiful female characters that belong to the church, and he's the Virgin Mary. But on her side, we only see her in her corner, and that's not fair because in the opposite corner where the male power lays, we can see thousands and thousands of male figures that since the beginning tried to take that beautiful power from her. We are talking about a young child because we cannot forget that she was a child when the Archangel Gabriel told her that she would carry the Son of God. She said yes to something that is the worst fear for many women. Because she said, yes, I will carry God's Son inside me. He will be my child. But in the same time, she knew already that that child would never be her. Never her alone. Because... He would belong to the whole humanity. So she carried 
For nine months, a child she knew she had to share with everyone else. And she said, yes, I will carry the child, even if she knew that at some point her son's life would end terribly and tragically for the salvation of the whole humanity. This is something that no other woman ever did. So this is something that only someone extremely strong and with a strong faith in God could do. That, for me, elevates her above any other male figure inside the Catholic Church. And we see the difference of exorcism between the male version who is represented by Marcus and the female version who is represented by Mother Bernadette. Those are two sides of the same coin. They are one, the mirror version of the other, because at some point we see Mother Bernadette without her veil. When the demon hits her, she falls on the ground and she loses the veil. So we see the hair, something that we should never see in a nun. And in that moment, she is exactly like Marcus, the veil. And the veil is exactly that, is the representation of their communion and marriage with God. So to see Bernadette without her veil is to see Marcus without his collar. The collar was robbed from Marcus. The veil was taken from Bernadette by the demon. So in that moment, they are the same. They are without the protection they have learned to count on. They are alone. And for that is the moment in which they must decide if they want to keep fighting or if they want to fly away and hide, escaping from this world. And the next morning, when finally Bernadette speaks to Marcus, there is this beautiful scene in which we see every side of Bernadette. We see the nun, of course. We see the exorcist and we see the woman. She doesn't feed into Marcus' self-loathing. She's sassier than him. So she's like, okay, so you have lost someone for the first time? Really? Oh, welcome to humanity. Guy, I've got to talk to your point about the, the it's beautiful the way that you wrote or talk about the parallels of Thomas and I'm sorry, Marcus losing his collar and and also Bernadette losing her veil. I had that never even crossed my mind that they purposely made this choice to do it at the exact time that he loses his own piece of what he thinks is so significant about having his power to exercise that they actually chose to visually do that in the episode two to remove it and show like, you know, that we are just these humans where these, where these vessels and for, you know, cause I think he knows that it is at his heart that that's what it's about, but he doesn't, he needs to be reminded of it. And Bernadette does that so well of like, we're, we're, you know, it's God that has the power, not us, but I, I just, I'm just 
floored by everything everything you have to say because you're so brilliant. So that's all I had to say about that. But please continue uh, with with your explanation of of this power dynamic. On that bench, we see the moment, Marcus. We realize something very important. Uh, something Bernadette tells him is very deep and very true, even if right now he cannot see the truth in her words. Because uh, when she is fed up by his commiseration and his self-loathing and self-pity, she tells him, so you think that with your collar they took the possibility for you to exorcise people? Really? Are you really that blind? The gift comes from God himself. Only God can keep it from you, can take it from you. No humans. Humans were the ones who took your collar. They couldn't touch your gift because your gift comes from God. And right now, Marcus cannot see that because right now Marcus is so sure that God abandoned him that when Bernadette told him that after 18 months, maybe it's time for him to learn something new. But he meets Bernadette for a reason. The reason is that God sent her on his way to keep telling him again and again and again, the church, the human church betrayed you, not God. You own your loyalty to God, not to them. This is something that is very important for all the arc of uh, this season, because we'll see men keeping trying to stop Marcus. Marcus is still one of the greatest menace for the, for the congregation of corrupted priests and cardinals and bishops. He's their enemy, but not even once is said that God really turned his back to Marcus. We've made it. We're at the fandom shout out section where we shout out to everybody out there in the exorcist congregation who is working so hard to keep this show alive. Hashtag renew the exorcist. I hear you, Twitter. I see you, Tumblr. You guys are amazing. Everybody out there on Facebook, just doing it to make sure that we can create a, a congregation of people that are spreading the word about this amazing show. So with that in mind, our exorcist fandom shout out is going out to fan at cuties on the horizon uh at cuties on the horizon is somebody that is on tumblr uh this person is now on twitter as well is also very active on the discord group chat and um basically uh, not only is a great fic writer if you have not read any fics lately go check cuties out because they have some really great uh the really nice complete one that just got uploaded onto archive of our own um also does a really good job of keeping us 
kind of in line in the group chat. We sometimes get a, you know, we, we need some rules and some regulations and uh, QDs did a lot of work in making sure that we, you know, had a good, clean, organized channels and some of the introductions, like how that works out. So she just did, she just did a lot. So um, if you're out there listening to, listening to this cuties, we appreciate you. We thank you for your work that you do with keeping this fandom strong. Um, and again, we also just want to shout out to everybody that's listening and to invite you. You are invited. Come and be a part of our conversation. Um, even if you're new to the fandom, maybe you just started watching, join us on the group chat. You can IM, I am, you can DM, that's what the cool kids say. I am dating myself. You could <laughs> direct message any of us, Gaia or, or Zoe or myself, uh, to get an invite to the group chat. Uh, write us on Twitter, write us on Tumblr, uh, your ideas for future shows. We have some cool things in the works already. We can't, uh, I was told by my partners, I cannot reveal what we're planning because it's going to be kind of big and who we're interviewing. Uh, but it basically, we just want you to know that you're part of this too. So thank you so much for listening. Guy, did you have anything that you wanted to add to that? Just thank them all. And uh, if you have questions or curiosity, you want to listen to us to explore just let's let us know and we'll do our best and thank you thank you to everyone out there listening love you all and thank you cutie love you bye love you bye thank bye. you so much for listening Woo, we did it. Yay! Yay!